The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Hey, I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go, right? There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. On NPR's new podcast, Wild Card, we have ripped up the typical script. It's part existential deep dive and part game show. I ask actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to ask some of life's biggest questions. Listen to NPR's Wild Card on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I am Joe McCormick, and we're back with part two of our look at Strange Ice. Now, initially, we didn't know this was going to be a two-part series. Uh, Last time, we looked at odd ice formations that can occur on Earth, such as uh, the main one I looked at was this thing called Nieves Penitentes, or just Penitentes, which are these uh, very strange sort of blades or spikes or pinnacles of ice that you can sometimes find in high mountain ranges, especially in the dry Andes. And we looked at uh, a historical anecdote of Charles Darwin trekking across the Andes and coming across a field of these things, one that had a horse frozen inside it. Uh, Mm -hmm. But we also looked at ice formations such as uh, ball ice, uh, candle ice, rotten ice, and a lot of other creepy, interesting, physically counterintuitive ways that ice can form or decompose. Uh, And so we're coming back today to talk some more about strange ice. Yeah, I guess this episode's kind of a release valve from the last episode. There were a number of uh, threads that had come up in our research that we just had to continue to pursue. Uh, so some of these are definitely still going to deal with direct examples of ice manifesting in a way that we might think of as weird, behaving in a way that some people might think of as weird. But we'll also get into some, some I, I thought, very fascinating and haunting um, folk traditions concerning the ice. All right. What have you got, Rob? So in the last episode, we discussed mostly in passing the dangers of ice, specifically coastal sea ice and any sort of icy environment that humans will attempt to traverse or in any way exploit for hunting, fishing, recreation, scientific purposes, um, specifically thinking about rotten ice, you know, the idea that it's just not safe to venture upon. Mm -hmm. And I imagine we have plenty of listeners out there who grew up in places with icy environments who can attest to the dangers of ice. That, I mean, there are just so many ways that it can potentially be dangerous. There's, of course, you know, the, the fact that ice can be slippery. You can fall. And if you fall on ice, it is hard. And, uh, you know, it can, that can hurt you as well. Uh, then you get into areas where, you know, ice may give way. It may plunge us into freezing water. It may plunge us into hollow areas where the water is drained out and so forth. There, uh, there are so many ways that ice can pose a danger. Ice can also just be physically heavy as well. Yeah, the danger of plunging through ice into a into a hazard below is is not only the case on say like a frozen pond or lake or uh, something, but uh, think about well, what happened to that horse that Charles Darwin came across. <laughs> we don't know, but he speculated well maybe when the snow was packed higher, it somehow like fell into a hole or crevasse in the ice and then and then died like that, and then the the rest of it sublimated away away around it. Yeah, and you don't even have to have really extreme environments for for potentially dangerous examples of this uh, from occurring. Like I I remember as a kid uh, encountering situations where you'd have like a bog or a, you know, a marshy area 
and you would have a situation where you would have this sort of ice cap on top, and I guess like the water uh, drained down uh, during the melting, and so you'd have this 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 uh, thin layer of ice on top, and you could fall down through it potentially, or climb down through it and play in it as a child. And so, yeah, that's I guess that's the, one of the things that we'll be getting into here is like ice creates unique environments that especially to a child can be as intriguing as they are potentially hazardous. I'm just thinking now about little Rob climbing down through the ice to play in the bog. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was part of my childhood. So, uh, yeah, I think it should come as no surprise that there there are traditional tales and uh, folk traditions seemingly meant to keep children away from ice. Uh, because, again, ice is great fun. Children are curious. And since time out of mind, parents have invented and passed down tales of perhaps more embodied threats, monsters to scare uh, children away from potentially dangerous environments. Now, this may ring a bell because we discussed one of these on the podcast a few years back. Uh, This would be Jenny Greenteeth, a river hag of English folklore, widely understood as a kind of nursery boogie uh, to keep children away from the water's edge. Bogey, rather, not boogie. (laughs) Yeah. I think Jenny could be used to warn children of of the dangers of water in multiple uh, environments. But the one that I I remember being really salient was like in certain regions of England, there might be uh, places where there were holes or pits in the ground, maybe marl pits or something like that, that had been hollowed out and then filled in with water. And sometimes this water would have uh, coverings of like algae or plant matter or something on top of it that would just make it look very green, make it look like it was just, you know, a continuation of the grass almost. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and you know, to your point, you know, once you have a folk creation like this, it can be deployed in various ways. It can sort of take on different meanings and different stressors in different stories. And uh, But there are many variations on this theme in global traditions where there's some sort of supernatural being that is associated with the water and the dangers of the water, especially for young children. Uh, the Japanese kappa is one that we've also discussed in the past that sometimes takes on these connotations. Hmm. And then, of course, there's a, this is another thing we've discussed in the show before. There's, of course, the 1973 British public information film Lonely Water, also known as The Spirit of Dark and Lonely Water, featuring the voice of Donald Pleasance. Uh, This very much carries on the tradition here. And uh, it's often discussed as something that um, traumatized an entire generation of of British children. It sounds like it worked. (laughs) I mean, are you going to go play in the flooded mine pits now? Yeah. (laughs) You know, it's a complicated uh, topic, though, um, the, the use of, uh, of, of boogeymen and boogie women, I guess, to, uh, to frighten children. Um, I remember uh, reading about some of the works of uh, Francisco Goya uh, in, in which he was um, criticizing this and, uh, and, and, t- and like tying in this, this whole idea that like by having parents that invoke supernatural threats to keep children in line, They're not only potentially protecting their child from these threats, but they're also instilling um, supernatural belief at an early age uh, Mm -hmm. that then, uh, you know, matures and becomes these other modes of supernatural belief that uh, to some may be seen as more harmful in their adulthood. Uh, so, like, his idea is uh, if you, you you teach a child to fear spectral dangers, even if it's useful in keeping them away from a real physical danger in childhood, maybe they just grow up to uh, continue to project spectral dangers that are not necessary. Yeah, I believe that's the argument. Though, of course, this is a complicated issue. So, you know, obviously, it's there are a lot of, uh, a lot of ins and outs here. So <laughs> I don't want to simplify it too much. But it's interesting to think about, like, what does it mean when you introduce uh, something like this? What does it mean when you introduce something that's uh, not even tied to uh, uh, scaring children so much? Like something like... Uh, uh, like a Santa Claus or Easter Bunny, you know, what what effect does that have? And of course, you know, a lot has been written and continues to be uh, written and said about this. So anyway, given all of this, it, uh, again, it should, should come as no surprise that there are traditions uh, that involve creating supernatural entities or monstrous entities that are associated with the dangers of ice and keeping children away from the ice. So I want to turn to um, a couple of these from uh, Native American uh, First Nations traditions. 
the first of these is the Abodamkin. Uh, this uh, I was reading about this in the Dictionary of Native American Mythology by Sam D. Gill and Irene F. Sullivan. This is apparently an entity in the traditions of the Maliseet and Passamaquoddy peoples in what is now the Canadian province of New Brunswick and the U.S. state of Maine. The authors here describe it as a boogie monster with long hair and huge teeth. Quote, Fear of him keeps small children from straying on thin, newly frozen ice in the winter and unguarded beaches in the summer. Oh, so is this creature in the water? Yeah, yeah. I was looking for more information on this. And according to Native Languages, that's native-languages.org, uh, it is also sometimes, sometimes described as a fanged sea serpent, uh, sometimes with like long red hair. And some accounts say that it might have once been a human woman and was transformed into this state. And despite the fact that some Western interpretations apparently have classified this as a kind of vampire, um, it is actually better thought of as a sea monster. So, yeah, this would be something that dwells within the water. Now, another one that I was reading about, this one is also um, a number of you may be familiar with, is the uh, Qualipaluit. This is an entity in the traditions of the Inuit, and there's an excellent write-up about it on the Kikwatani Inuit Association's Inuit Myths and Legends website. That's uh, inuitmyths.com, which features some just haunting artwork and also text that is uh, available in both English and Inuit. Joe, I included one of these images from the website here that uh, is just Ooh. absolutely terrifying. Yeah, extremely. Oh, no, and it's it's like snatching a, a baby. That's what they do. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the website describes them as scaly marine humanoids that reek of sulfur. And uh, yeah, they snatch children. They prey on children who play alone on the beach or get too close to breaking ice. They may also feature pouches on their back to stuff children in, uh, though I, I couldn't tell. It seemed ambiguous based on the entry and based on the uh, illustrations. There are a couple, a couple of additional illustrations on the website. It, whether this pouch is in their clothing or if this is a pouch in their body. Here's a haunting excerpt from the InuitMyths.com website. Quote, usually the Kualipaluit jump out of the water and grab children without any warning. Sometimes, however, you can hear them knocking under the ice. Some elders have said that if the ocean begins to become wavy in an area or steam begins to rise from the ocean, a Kualipaluit might be hiding underneath the water. This one is so scary. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I love the the idea that of one of these creatures underneath the ice, like tapping or knocking at it, uh, especially. Uh, especially because if you ever do have experiences out on ice over a frozen body of water, you can hear strange sounds emanating from below. That's right, right. And one of the things we'll get into here in a bit is things that can suddenly occur that also have sounds regarding the ice, especially the ice close to the shore. So uh, I, the a direct line was not made between these two topics in the, the material I was looking at, but I can't help but think about it now that I've researched it a little bit. But uh, anyway, I, I highly recommend InuitMyths.com. The website features profiles on a handful of other mythological beings and creatures, including the two knit who I mentioned in a recent Monster Fact episode. Wow. All right, so I mentioned the ice-making sounds. Uh, so I want to move on now to the topic of what is known as ice shove. Uh, now, this is, this is more of a clear example of weird ice, or rather ice behaving in a way that many of us might think of as weird, though for a number of you out there, ice shove is just a reality, a uh, potential reality of the winter months. Uh, I was reading about this in Barry Lopez's Arctic Dreams, and he mentions uh, there's a whole passage where he's talking about like long stillness broken by sudden movement as sort of a hallmark of Arctic landscapes. And he ties this also into just like a sense of patience uh, that is also that he observed as being present in native populations and indigenous peoples. Uh, but he, he cites an example of 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 this ice shove concerning the breaking of both river ice and sea ice. And for river ice, Lopez describes it as follows. Quote, pistol reports of cracking on the river, and then the sound of breaking branches and the whining pop of a falling tree as the careening blocks of ice gouge the riverbanks. And he describes the sea ice uh, variation as follows. Quote, suddenly in the middle of winter and without warning, a huge piece of sea ice surges hundreds of feet inland like something alive. 
and he cites the uh, Inopiat word Ivu. I'm, I, I hope I'm pronouncing that right. My apologies for any uh, mispronunciations on these uh, these uh, terms. Uh, and uh, it is also known as ice shove. I've also seen it referred to as ice tsunamis, uh, it, along with a number of other English names. Ice shoves are generally classified as onshore ice pushes caused by wind, currents, uh, changes in temperature, and other causes. As meteorologist Matthew Capucci explained it in a uh, 2020 Washington Post article, uh, there are a lot of explainers out, these, uh, out there that often uh, pop up when uh, exceptional or notable uh, examples of ice shoves occur. And uh, this, I believe, was one of those cases. Um, this meteorologist pointed out that as the, the wind blows over a long sheet of ice, it can give that sheet of ice enough momentum that it can't stop when pushed against the shore. Instead, it fragments. And then the fragments pile up in heaps of shattered ice on the coast. Uh, conditions have to be just right. The ice has to be thin enough. It has to be brittle enough. And it generally only piles up a few feet onto the shore. But there are, of course, exceptional examples where things get much higher or they go up the shore a little bit more. Mm. Apparently, some places are more ideal for it. Um, I saw uh, Lake, Lake Erie pointed out in this article due to its length and particular orientation. And, uh, and again, there are some pretty exceptional examples. In June of 2011, along the Chukchi Sea coast in Alaska, ice shove piled up 15 feet. And I've seen it record heights as high as like 40 feet in some cases. So that's like a 40-foot wall of ice fragments piling up along the coast. Yikes. Yeah. And uh, Lopez's uh, ice shove measurements here seem in keeping with, with the measurements I'm seeing. Uh, in 2020, an ice shove on Lake Winnebago was, according to NBC26 out of northeastern uh, Wisconsin, quote, a couple of hundred feet long and taller than the supper club itself. <laughs> <laughs> what does that quote mean? I'm taking it out of context. The, the article had this had footage of the ice shove piled up next to Jim and Linda's Lakeshore Supper Club in the town of Pipe. Um, <laughs> appears to be like a single floor building, uh, but still, that is a lot of ice. Like, that's a huge wall of moving ice. Or, I mean, it's no longer moving, but it, you know, it, still, it has moved up. It has advanced in a way that is concerning. The Supper Club is threatened. They're, they're going to get ice in their hot dish. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Um, wow. So uh, I, I looked up a few pictures of this, and it is alarming because, yeah, you can see cases where I guess these are, are lakeside houses where the ice is just shoved right up against the house, like you're saying happened to the supper club here, uh, and in some cases shoved into the house and apparently causes damage, like, you know, busts a wall or something. Yeah, yeah. So, I, you know, I, I guess it's the kind of thing where if you had observed it and you knew that it can kind of occur suddenly, you you might have that in your mind when— can, trying to convince the children not to play too close to the ice sometimes, though it also seems like a rare, it's not, it's not so regular an occurrence that it really would happen all of the time. And coming back to our point earlier, there are a number of other more common things that could be dangerous about the ice and the ice uh, at the edge of the coast, or, or, or of course, even uh, when the ice has melted, like the water's edge can still be dangerous, especially to a young child. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's plenty of danger just from falling in. Yeah. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Rob, as the uh, the local host with allergies here, they sent you some of their nasal spray to treat your allergies. What was your experience like? Yeah, that's right. I always wrestle with the pollen a bit when it rolls in during the spring. So they sent me the little uh, nasal spray. I tried out the product and yeah, it sure did help me get on top of my symptoms for the day. And it's so fast acting, uh, it was already kicking in before I left the house. Astapro is a first-of-its-kind nasal allergy spray. It's the fastest 24-hour over-the-counter allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes, while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray. Astapro delivers full prescription-strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. Get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount so you can get Astapro and go today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. Astapro and go. Use this directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. 
Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hi, listener. I'm Carol Fisher, the host of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister. I'm so excited for you to hear the brand new season where we're uncovering a 35-year-old mystery. But for those of you who didn't hear season one or just want to listen to it again, you can now get access to all episodes of that first season of The Girlfriends 100% ad-free through the iHeart True Crime Plus subscription, which is available exclusively on Apple Podcasts. You'll also get access to every single episode of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister, ad-free and one week early, only available to iHeart True Crime Plus subscribers. So what are you waiting for? Head to Apple Podcasts, search for iHeart True Crime Plus, and subscribe today. Now, another interesting um, ice-related phenomena I wanted to talk about here. Uh, There's less to this, and this one will be kind of quick, I guess. Um, But I ran across uh, this idea of ice blink. It's not so much a property of the ice itself, but rather an optical interaction. It's essentially a glare in the sky over an ice field, Uh, though not to be confused with various other like various actual forms of mirages, such as uh, Fata Morgana, which we've discussed in the show before. Um, these are also found in the Arctic. And there's an entire chapter in, in uh, Lopez's book, Arctic Dreams, where he talks about, uh, about this, about the northern lights and so forth. But basically, ice blink is just the bright white reflection in the clouds above an expanse of ice. So if you're at sea in the Arctic and you see ice blink in the distance, and you know what you're looking at for and looking at, of course, you can navigate by it, knowing that this means that there's likely a large expanse of ice in that direction. Hmm. Likewise, the opposite is true with water sky. So if you're on a great expanse of ice and the overcast sky is bright with reflected light, you might see a dark patch of sky in the distance that indicates a body of open water beneath it. So in other words, it's, you know, it's the presence of dark clouds over an area of open water in a, in a region that is otherwise frozen. Hmm. And this, this, you know, these are signs that um, you know, indigenous peoples would have known about uh, and used to navigate and, uh, and techniques that would then would have been adopted by um, individuals exploring from other, other parts of the world. It reminds me of some of, the, some of what we discussed in our episodes about uh, um, Pacific navigation and how there are signs that um, the informed mind could look for in the sky that would indicate the presence of an island. Yeah, that's right. So listeners, if you haven't heard, we did a series a while back on uh, yeah, techniques of navigation used by uh, Pacific Island peoples to make long sea voyages without uh, modern instruments and stuff like that. And it's amazing how much information you can actually get from things like the stars, uh, sea currents, uh, uh, birds and things like that, that uh, the untrained eye would never understand to interpret as as relevant information about where the position of an island was rel- uh, relative to you. Uh, yeah. But that was truly one of the most mind-blowing series I, I think we've ever done because it just r- opened my eyes to 
the fact that there there is so much information in the world that can be exploited if you know what to look for. And to a person who doesn't know what to look for, it's completely invisible. You'd have no idea that it corresponded to any kind of navigationally relevant uh, facts. Absolutely. Yeah, it's such a fascinating topic. And anyway, yeah, this is another thing like that. I, I never would have thought of this, but uh, this is very interesting. Navigating by the reflection of the surface color of a landscape over the horizon as it reflects on the, on the clouds in the sky. Yeah, because to the untrained eye, you would just think, oh, dark cloud in the distance. Uh, no, there's a, there, there's a white cloud in the distance. But yeah, to, to know what it means uh, can give you vital information about where you're going. Now, speaking of the color of ice and of sea ice, this brings me to something I wanted to talk about uh, today, which is the color of icebergs. Uh, I was thinking about how most icebergs, of course, most icebergs and sea ice and, and uh, ice sheets you see are basically white in color. But occasionally I will see photos of icebergs that have uh, streaks or, or whole surfaces that are other colors, maybe blue icebergs that look very uh, beautiful and strange. And I wonder what makes the difference there. So I looked into this a little bit. Now, most icebergs are indeed white in color, but of course, sometimes icebergs of other colors can be found, uh, apparently, especially coming off of Antarctica, and we can talk about reasons for that. But the white, relatively opaque surface of a common iceberg is caused by how ice accumulates, which is by adding layers of snow in most cases. So icebergs typically begin as part of a glacier or a polar ice sheet, which eventually breaks off in pieces and floats away in the ocean. So it originally formed along with the rest of the glacier. And the way that forms is snow falls down from the sky, it piles up, it gets compressed, and if it doesn't melt seasonally, more snow falls on top of it and just keeps piling up and getting more and more compressed until it forms this solid chunk or sheet of ice. This process can become cumulative over many snowfalls, many seasons, many years, and eventually a, uh, it forms this, this glacier, and then a piece of this glacier or ice sheet can break off and float away in the water. So what determines the difference in color? Well, when you see a white iceberg, um, what you're seeing there apparently is the relatively uncompressed upper or outer layers of the, the snowpack that is forming the ice on top of it. That relatively uncompressed uh, snow contains lots of little imperfections like air bubbles, especially, and just lots of little reflective surfaces within the uh, relatively low density outer layers. And these little imperfections and air bubbles and things tend to scatter light. They reflect all frequencies of light uh, equally. And of course, when you combine all, all colors of light, you get white light. So that light bounces off uh, and it appears white to our eyes. But when you're making a glacier, as each layer of ice becomes more deeply buried in a glacier or iceberg, it gets pressed harder by the layers above. So new snow falls, the ice load above it becomes heavier, and the imperfections tend to get squeezed out, like air bubbles get compressed and removed. The ice crystals that were originally snowflakes get squeezed, and they form larger crystals of dense ice. So this denser, more compressed ice does not reflect all frequencies of light equally. Instead, it starts to behave uh, in a different way. It absorbs some wavelengths, especially longer wavelengths, toward the red end of the spectrum, colors like red, orange, and yellow. Whereas shorter wavelengths on the green, blue, indigo, violet end of the spectrum are less likely to be absorbed and more likely to bounce back out. So if you see an iceberg that looks opaque white on the outside, it is probably covered with snow or uncompressed surface ice or ice that has been weathered and scratched up in some way. If you see an iceberg that looks a more cloudy blue, you're probably seeing the exposed compressed layers of ice from an older glacier or from deep inside the glacier formation. And uh, sometimes icebergs also look blue and a bit more translucent or even transparent 
when they somehow uh, capsize in the water, bringing up the smoother blue portion that was once under the waterline. And there are also some other formation methods for blue spectrum and translucent bergs. And frankly, uh, with these, they look not only beautiful, but downright shocking. Rob, I've attached a couple of examples for you to look at here, and it's almost beyond words. Yeah, this looks like a potential fragment of an amazing airbrush mural on the side of a van <laughs> from the late 70s, early 80s that is, an, is somehow ended up in the Arctic. It's like it, it has that much. It, it, it's like marbled looking as well. Like, it's just amazing. Yeah, this is like held in the hand of an airbrush wizard, I think. It's like, <laughs> I don't know, breathing smoke on it or something. Yeah. Now, to see ice really looking blue, you, you don't actually have to uh, look for a uh, an iceberg floating in the water that is flipped over somehow. You, you can see this, for example, in cracks and crevasses in ice sheets and glaciers. Uh, I dug up some pictures for you to look at here, Rob. But if you look this up at home, you can see it for yourself. Look up like glacier crevasse. Often the way it will appear is that the top layer is opaque white, like we're used to seeing, uh, you know, where the snow has been piled on. And but but if you're able to look down into the crack, you will see progressively bluer and bluer shades like the light coming out is a deeper blue the deeper you go down. Uh, and again, this is a result of that ice being more compressed. Mm. And the blue can look just quite dark, too. Like, uh, if, if, to the untrained eye, you would almost think artificially blue. Yeah. Like, what happened to this glacier? What kind of toilet water <laughs> was transformed <laughs> into this glacier? Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices... Well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hi, listener. I'm Carol Fisher, the host of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister. I'm so excited for you to hear the brand new season where we're uncovering a 35-year-old mystery. But for those of you who didn't hear season one or just want to listen to it again, you can now get access to all episodes of that first season of The Girlfriends 100% ad-free through the iHeart True Crime Plus subscription, which is available exclusively on Apple Podcasts. You'll also get access to every single episode of The Girlfriends, our lost sister, ad-free and one week early only available to iHeart True Crime Plus subscribers. So what are you waiting for? Head to Apple Podcasts, search for iHeart True Crime Plus, and subscribe today. Hey, I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go, right? There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. On NPR's new podcast, Wild Card, we have ripped up the typical script. It's part existential deep dive and part game show. I ask actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to ask some of life's biggest questions. Listen to NPR's Wild Card on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. No, I was, I was reading about this in an article uh, for Scientific American by Catherine Wright uh, called uh, Icebergs Can Be Green, Black, Striped, or Even Rainbow. And one of the things this article uh, mentions is uh, it cites an expert named uh, Daniela Jansen, who is a geophysicist at the Alfred Wegener Institute for Polar and Marine Research in Germany. 
And this researcher talks about a different iceberg formation process, which is the direct freezing of seawater leading to the creation of marine ice. Uh, so according to Jansen, this kind of ice can build up underneath ice shelves. And an ice shelf is where part of a land-based glacier extends past dry land and juts out over the sea. So it's like a shelf over the water. And uh, under, under the ice shelves of Antarctica, actual frozen seawater can agglomerate into formations that can eventually become icebergs. Whereas uh, the snow that falls layer by layer and accumulates into a glacier on land is mostly pure water, ice that accumulates by the freezing of seawater, which is more rare, comes with a lot of stuff in it. So, because it's seawater, right? So it can have mineral dust and just, uh, you know, grains of rocks and various kinds of minerals that can uh, bring different colors to a resulting iceberg that comes from the freezing of the seawater. Uh, maybe it has a lot of iron particles in it, or maybe it has uh, black-looking, uh, you know, volcanic lava uh, minerals. It can also have a lot of dead stuff in it, uh, dead or living organic matter. And apparently marine ice that forms this way out of seawater with a lot of dead cells from organic matter can tend to be yellow or green in color. And so if you've ever seen yellow or green icebergs, especially coming from uh, around Antarctica, because uh, th these types of marine ice iceberg, they, they tend to form only in very cold conditions because, again, they have to be formed out of seawater. Seawater having greater salt content is harder to freeze than fresh water. Uh, so, so basically all of this like multicolored ice uh, made out of seawater only forms around Antarctica. Uh, anything from the Arctic North will typically be white or, or blue. Uh, this marine ice that forms around Antarctica sometimes has these like gross, amazing, you know, like green jade or yellow death colors. Uh, and a lot of this tends to be organic contaminants. Meanwhile, marine ice that forms underneath these ice shelves but uh, doesn't have much in the way of contaminants, tends to be very translucent or even almost transparent appearing. You can see deep into it. So this is where you get these, uh, these strange-looking bergs that are almost as clear as glass in a very dark color, almost a deep blue or even a black. You can also get striped icebergs, and this happens when you have an ice shelf hanging out over uh, the ocean and cracks form along the submerged portion, and uh, uh, th these areas can flood with seawater, forming stripes of different colors and opacity than the surrounding ice. So maybe you've got uh, some ice that's, you know, the regular uh, sort of blue ice, and then it fills in with some marine ice from seawater that had a bunch of dead organic matter in it, so it might have, like, stripes of yellow or stripes of green. But I want to move on to uh, to another iceberg-related topic, which is icebergs beyond Earth. <laughs> so you might kind of wonder, well, how could that even be possible? Because we know that Earth is the only planet in the solar system with liquid water oceans on the surface. Other planets may have had them long ago in the past, but not today. We do know that there are some other uh, some other objects, some moons in the solar system that have liquid oceans underneath the surface, like Jupiter's moon Europa. But there is one other object in the solar system that does have liquid seas and lakes and rivers on its surface, though they are not made out of water. That space object is Saturn's moon Titan, which is Saturn's largest moon, the second largest moon in the whole solar system after Jupiter's Ganymede, and the only moon in the solar system with a dense atmosphere, which is made mostly of nitrogen and is in fact extremely thick. Uh, the atmospheric pressure on the surface of Titan is about 50 or 60% greater than the pressure at sea level on Earth. So uh, one comparison I've come across is that just standing in the air on the surface of Titan would feel kind of like it would be a level of pressure similar to being 15 meters or 50 feet underwater on Earth. Oh, wow. That's thick. Titan is also extremely cold with an average surface temperature of 183, uh, of a negative 183 degrees Celsius or negative 297 degrees Fahrenheit. That's really cold. Of course, that is too cold to support liquid water on the surface. It is not going to have water oceans. 
But nevertheless, Titan does have large, stable systems of rivers, lakes, and seas made out of not water, but liquid hydrocarbons, uh, especially liquid methane, ethane, and some liquid nitrogen. So methane is a hydrocarbon that we know here on Earth as well, chemical formula CH4. Uh, on Earth, it's pretty much always in the form of a gas. Ethane, another hydrocarbon, uh, is C2H6. And together, methane and ethane contribute to a kind of uh, atmospheric chemical cycle on Titan that has some resemblances to, but also some differences from the water cycle on Earth. So, uh, like, methane is released, apparently, from uh, deep inside the interior of Titan, uh, and then it forms a, a sort of weather system. It gets broken down by sunlight in the upper atmosphere, and there are there is some kind of methane or, or methane uh, downstream product uh, weather system where, you know, these these organic molecules fall down from above. So you get uh, like rains and snows that have these hydrocarbon features. Mm. So one of the consequences of this wet hydrocarbon environment is a surface with snaking rivers and massive lakes of liquid hydrocarbons, especially clustered around the moon's polar regions. So the three largest of these hydrocarbon seas in order of size are Kraken Mare, Lygia Mare, and Punga Mare, which are all situated around the moon's north pole. Mythology notes, by the way, I think we, we know the Kraken, but uh, the Punga is the name of a being in Maori mythology who is a son of the sea deity uh, Tangaroa, but also the father of all creatures considered strange and ugly, including <laughs> lizards and sharks. Lygia was the name, uh, was a name that appeared in Greek mythology in multiple contexts, but always associated with minor sea deities like the Nereids or the Sirens. And also in a creepy Edgar Allan Poe short story where uh, I, I think the deal is uh, Lygia was the narrator's wife and she died and then he marries another woman and then she dies but then resurrects from the dead as his first wife, Lygia. Uh, this would be the tomb of Lygia, right? Uh, I think so. And it, yeah, the, that's the one that has the poem, The Conqueror Worm. Yeah, yeah. And uh, there was a Vincent Price uh, adaptation of this one to some degree. Ah, uh, yeah. So anyway, you've got these maria, these uh, these seas or lakes. Uh, I don't know what the you know whether you want to call them seas or lakes. The biggest one uh, I think has been compared roughly to the size of the Caspian Sea on Earth. Uh, I think Lygia Mare I've seen compared roughly to the size of Lake Superior. But whatever, you, however you classify them, these bodies of liquid hydrocarbons on Titan were documented extensively through radar imaging carried out by the Cassini mission orbiter over a period of many years in the, in the 2000s and 2010s. So I wanted to zoom in on some of these different radar images of Lygia Mare, the second largest sea on Titan. Uh, and these photos were taken at intervals between 2007 and 2015. Rob, I've got uh, these for you to look at here. So what we see uh, appears to be a sort of flower-shaped peninsula of land jutting out mm -hmm. into the sea. And off of one of the petals of this flower of land, there is a mystery. In the image from 2007, the land terminates and there's just nothing but dark lake beyond it. Then, in an image from 2013, suddenly there is what appears to be an island off the same coastal feature. Then, in another image from 2014, the island seems to have faded into just a wisp of discoloration, something that looks like it could be, uh, you know, I'm using too much of an earth analogy here, but it looks like it could be like an atoll or like a bank of shallows. Um, and then by, by 2015, the island has vanished completely and only the dark liquid remains once more. What the heck? Or why, <laughs> how is the topography of Titan changing like that? are islands appearing and disappearing on this alien sea. Uh, so these types of anomalies have been referred to in the press as the magic islands of Titan, since they seem to appear and disappear when we're not looking. And it's still not known for sure what they are, but there are some ideas, some proposals. Uh, you would need something that would be present long enough to have a reasonable chance of being caught in images taken by the orbiter, 
but also something that would uh, disappear completely within a couple of years. So there have been various suggestions, uh, including floating hydrocarbon solids, like particles that have fallen from the atmosphere, maybe a sort of carbon-based dust floating on the lake, or perhaps massive upwellings of nitrogen gas bubbles appearing as bright spots on the radar image. But just recently, in January 2024, uh, a group of researchers suggested another possibility, which is hydrocarbon icebergs, basically porous, honeycomb-like frozen masses of hydrocarbons. Uh, so the paper in question here is by uh, Zinting Yu, UAU, uh, Julia Garver, Zi Zhang, and Patricia McGugan. It's called The Fate of Simple Organics on Titan's Surface, a Theoretical Perspective, published in Geophysical Research Letters. So the authors here are saying uh, in the atmosphere of Titan, you've got these simple compounds like methane that get broken down, maybe by exposure to sunlight, uh, and they recombine and end up transformed into bigger, more complex organic molecules. And many of these carbon-based compounds freeze solid and fall to the surface. Now, what happens when these hydrocarbon ices fall on the surface of Titan's lakes? It seems that most of them probably sink to the bottom, becoming new layers of lake bed sediment. Uh, because remember, it's peculiar to water, that frozen water floats on the surface of liquid water. Most frozen solids increase in density and would be likely to sink in liquid. But not all frozen hydrocarbons would sink. The authors write, quote, Imagine a sponge full of holes. If the solids are like this, with 25% to 60% of their volume being empty space, they can float. Some solids, like hydrogen cyanide ice, can also float due to surface tension effects. And I was reading uh, in a press release, the lead author, uh, UT San Antonio planetary scientist uh, Zinting Yu, has compared these icebergs to the way that porous volcanic pumice can float on the surface of mm. oceans on Earth before eventually becoming saturated and sinking. So in this paper, the authors created a model of how various materials would behave on the lake surface, and they concluded that it wouldn't work unless conditions were just right. But if they were right, it would work. You could have these floating icebergs of hydrocarbons. Uh, so to read from uh, the, the press release summary, quote, Use modeling suggested individual clumps are likely too small to float by themselves. But if enough clumps mass together near the shore, larger pieces could break off and float away, similar to how glaciers calve on Earth. Hmm. Cal calving, they're referring to, yeah, parts of a, a glacier breaking off and falling into the water. Uh, the uh, press release continues, with a combination of a bigger size and the right porosity, these organic glaciers could explain the magic island phenomenon. So the issue is not settled. This is yet another proposal for what it could be to explain these, uh, these magic islands in the radar images. But I kind of hope this explanation is proven right, because I love the idea of icebergs on Titan, um, maybe, maybe that would like warn us away from the hubris of trying to launch a Titanic on the lakes of Titan. Um, I don't know. But then again, I guess if they're very porous and honeycomb like, maybe they wouldn't re represent much of a threat to boats. I'm not sure. <laughs> well, this is, this is fascinating. Yeah. I, I, I had not thought about, uh, uh, you know, obviously the topic of ice and, and oceans and, and, and water, uh, on on other worlds and moons within our uh, solar system has come up before, but I, I had not looked at uh, this idea of giant honeycomb glaciers potentially. Uh, uh, this is uh, this is fascinating, but to be clear, not an alien spaceship. No reason to think so. I think we would we would exhaust the uh, the I don't know planetary science explanations before turning to uh, alien technology. It's probably telling that the press latched onto the the term magic islands instead. Like, like <laughs> yeah. uh, kind of maybe even a, too much of a stretch to say is this a, is this an alien spaceship? No, at best, magic island. Well, I, I have no inclination to think it's a spaceship, but I still do find the, just the idea of um, surface features appearing and disappearing on the lakes of Titan very very uh, spooky and fascinating. Absolutely. 
All right. Well, we're going to go ahead and close out this episode. Um, obviously, there's there's so much more regarding ice we could cover. Um, I I don't I don't we haven't decided yet if we're doing a third ice episode. We, we may go on to some other topic, but potentially we could come back to ice in the future if that's the case. Because uh, just in Lopez's book, I mean, he he has whole stretches where he's talking about like different types of ice and the behavior of ice and when, of course, uh, indigenous um, beliefs and traditions concerning ice. Uh, there's a lot we could cover. And, uh, and likewise, we know a lot of you out there, you have direct experience with ICE in ways that we don't. You may have uh, takes on some of the things we've discussed here, observations, traditions, etc. And we would love to hear from you. Just a reminder that Stuff to Blow Your Mind is primarily a science podcast with core episodes publishing on Tuesdays and Thursdays in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed, Lister Mail on Mondays, a short form episode on Wednesdays. And on Fridays, we set aside most serious concerns to just talk about a weird movie on Weird House Cinema. Um, as uh, I want to thank everyone who has uh, jumped in and given us uh, some stars and some nice reviews uh, places. Uh, and we encourage you to do that if you like the show. Uh, that's one small thing you can do to help support us. Um, let's see. Likewise, hey, if you listen on an Apple device or you use um, uh, Apple Podcasts, jump in there. Make sure you're still subscribed. Make sure you're still receiving downloads. And if anything looks out of line, I think those pla- that platform allows you to uh, chime in and, um, and say something. So, uh, hey, uh, in general, though, if you have direct feedback on the episodes and topics you'd like to hear covered or topics you enjoyed and you'd like to hear more of in the future, well, email is the way to get in touch with us. And Joe will have that email address for you in just a second here. Right. A huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, J.J. Posway. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Hey, I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go, right? There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. On NPR's new podcast, Wild Card, we have ripped up the typical script. It's part existential deep dive and part game show. I ask actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to ask some of life's biggest questions. Listen to NPR's Wild Card on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts.